Okay. So today, what I want to talk to you guys about is the authority of the believer. We're in a series on spiritual warfare, which is a subset of our series for the year. Our theme for the year is holiness. And so you're probably wondering what does spiritual warfare have to do with holiness? But it's our authority that comes and is based off our holiness. And so today, I want to just study that authority and the holiness that just helps to build that authority. So whenever you talk about spiritual warfare, especially in the church, and if you were to buy a book on Christianity 101, you probably have all seen this a million times, but when you open the book, at the end is usually the chapter on tithing, right? And the chapter on fasting. And then once in a great while, there will be an addendum in that book that talks about spiritual warfare, okay? Just tucked neatly in the back uh, where nobody has to go there unless they're looking for it. And so we know it exists, but it's just something we don't like to talk about. It's somewhere we just don't like to go unless we're absolutely forced into the corner to seek it out. But if I was to ask everybody here today, you know, who's experienced a spiritual attack? Who has suffered from the enemy? I think we could all probably raise our hands on that one, right? And... Uh, but why is it that we're so ill-prepared? Why is it that we don't like to discuss it and talk about it? It's just a, a messy realm. And so it's a realm that's not too well understood. And so hopefully today we can bring a little understanding to that realm. If you were to go on a missions trip, and many of you who have been on a missions trip all report the same thing, that when you go to a third world country, they have no problem believing in the dark side. They have no uh, problem believing in spiritual forces that are alive and well and that are going on behind the scenes because they've all experienced it. They've all been tormented to a large degree. And so they're all ears when you say, I have answers. There is a spirit of light. There is a way to overcome the darkness. And when you share that with them, they want to know because they're sick and tired of being abused and kicked around by the enemy. So we need to understand that we're in a war. Regardless of your opinion, we're in a war. A lot of people don't like to talk about it, don't want to acknowledge it, but it is for real. So we're either victors or victims, but the war has already been won in the heavens. I think we all understand that, right? So today, part of what I, I want to discuss is the three battlegrounds. Many of you have heard that there are three battlegrounds. Some of you have no idea that there's three battlegrounds. Some of you might think there's more than three battlegrounds. But um, basically, the premise that I operate from is a treatise that was written back in 1989. I just brought this because it's, it's so old. It was done on a typewriter. Um, so it's the original manuscript for the book called The Three Battlegrounds by Francis Frangipan. Has anybody heard of Francis Frangipan? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, in the charismatic circles, pretty much a, a solid teacher, a solid voice, but he's done a lot of study, and he does a lot of teaching on spiritual warfare. And so this little book, this treatise, it's now out in paperback and hardcover. You know, it's a legitimate book now, but this little study that started out has become kind of a staple for anybody that does spiritual warfare. And Francis talks about three battlegrounds, uh, the mind, uh, the earthly realm, and the heavenlies. 
And sometimes he talks about the earthly realm as being the realm of the church because that's the realm that we operate in, even though we have spiritual weapons for that. So first of all, I want to address the mind. And I'm not going to talk too much about the mind and the earthly realm, but today I want to talk more about the heavenly realm. So the first scripture that I want to highlight for you is 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. And it says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So here we know that the battle is in the mind. That's the number one place that the enemy engages us, is in our minds. And it's interesting that Calvary was also called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. So in Israel, if you were to zoom out on that mountain, it actually represents or looks totally like a skull, a human skull. And so Jesus won the victory on Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of the mind. And so that's the number one battlefield is the mind. And I'm not going to go into that whole thing today because in the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to have a guest speaker, Steve Fair. Um, some of you know Steve. He's a Christian counselor, a pretty prominent counselor in this area, this region. And Steve has just written a book on some of the protectors or some of the spiritual warfare that happens in our mind. And I want to really encourage you to be here when Steve comes because he's going to give you some keys. He's going to give you some tools to really understand the battleground of the mind and how to overcome the enemy and especially to understand and recognize things that we call protectors. And when you go through counseling, a lot of times, one of the things the counselor is trying to discern is what are your protectors? How do you protect yourself? How do you outmaneuver people who are trying to minister the love of God to you? And Steve, uh, through his many years of counseling, has discerned patterns and identified these protectors, and he's going to march us through Number one, how to recognize protectors, but number two, how to deal with these protectors so that we're not so bound up, that we're not so shut down, but that we're able to communicate on a whole new level. So I'm really excited about that. We had Steve come in. He spoke to the prophecy team uh, a month or two ago, and it was really powerful. And a lot of people got set free from a lot of the, the battles in their minds through this ministry that he has. Okay, so that's number one, the, the battlefield of the mind. Um, the second realm that we deal with is the earthly realm. The civil government keeps order on the earth by using carnal weapons. And as you know, our weapons as Christians, as believers, our weapons are not carnal weapons. Our weapons are spiritual. So Romans 13, 1 through 5 deals with this directly, this realm. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. These, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
So that first part is really important, that understanding that all authority is God-given, and if you go against the authority, you're basically rebelling against God. It says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So again, just to break that down quickly, is if you're doing right, you have nothing to fear. But if you're doing wrong, then you have something to fear, right? When you blow by that cop going 20, 25 over, uh, you got something to fear, right? Because you know that you did something wrong. But if you blow by that cop doing the speed limit, you're like, I got nothing to fear. I'm good, right? Uh, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be set free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Pretty simple advice, isn't it? But somehow that escapes us on a day-to-day -day basis. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. So in this earthly realm, he's saying that we have civil authority. God has appointed these authorities, and not only has he appointed them, but he's given them the means to enforce what they're trying to uh, bring about peace and order in the world. And so if you're a lawbreaker, you have a lot to fear. But if you're a law abider, then you have nothing to fear. Um, some people will say, well, what about uh, leaders or authorities who aren't very godly? You know, what if I have a leader that is of the devil? <laughs> Are you telling me that's a God-appointed authority? Well, again, like I said today, I don't want to delve too deep into it, but there is a doctrine, and it's a very interesting doctrine. It was written in the 1600s uh, by some monks, and it was called the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates. Is anybody familiar with that doctrine? And, and basically what it is, it's, it's common sense, basically. It just says... If you have an authority that tries to say something contrary to God, so if you understand that God is the ultimate authority, amen? So as Christians, that's our ultimate authority. But if there is an authority that isn't following the rule of God or is breaking biblical principles and insists that you, by a matter of law, break a godly principle to fulfill a lesser magistrate, a lesser governing principles, rules, then you have the right to rebel against that lesser magistrate. And so um, we'll get into that later, uh, probably a couple months from now, but we want to make sure that you understand that because we're, we're to be submitted to God-given, godly authority, but if the authority goes against God's will and you have to make a decision, do I obey the civil authority or do I obey God, then God trumps every time. Amen? So it's a very clear doctrine, and what I like about it, it gives you a guidepost on, on how to navigate through the spheres of authority. And in addition to that, one of the ways that we take back the realm of this world is through divine strategies. And one of the strategies we're going to talk about probably in October or November is called the Seven Mountain Strategy. And basically... It's a genius strategy that God downloaded on Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham, and he showed these men a, a godly strategy on how to take back 
the spheres of influences, the power centers of this world that we as Christians have kind of capitulated. We've kind of given up on these power centers and we've allowed the enemy to rule and reign over us when it should be us as Christians, us as godly men and women who have authority in these realms. And so we're going to be rolling that doctrine out to you um, later on in the year as well. So that's the worldly realm, that's the worldly battlefield, that's the carnal realm, and so that's the second battleground that Francis Fran Japan details out. And then the third battleground is the war in the heavens. So the church represents a higher power than what the civil authority does, and the church isn't entrusted with much more power than the civil government. Because the civil government, all they can do is try to change men by changing laws. But the church changes men by changing their hearts. And that's, that's a permanent change, right? That's a godly change. That's a change that aligns itself up with everything that, that God has. So with the heavenly realm, what if I was to tell you that right now in this room, there's an unseen realm. There's a realm right now that's going on that many of us have no idea that's happening. There are spirits hovering over this place. In fact, some of you have probably given these spirits piggyback rides into the sanctuary, right? And that's kind of a scary thought to think about. But there have been many books written about this, and some of you who came up through the 80s might remember some of the Frank Peretti books. Remember this, presence, dark, this present darkness? And there was a whole trilogy of books on that. And basically what Peretti attempted to do was explain that everything that happens in the earthly realm has spiritual dynamics happening uh, behind the scenes. And it's a very fascinating book, but it helps you to tune in, to key into some of these spiritual entities that are hard at work. Um, the Final Quest, another book that's a more recent book, I don't know if anybody's read The Final Quest, but very detailed explanation of a vision of a Christian leader had of the spiritual realm and how these de demonic forces operate and actually uh, influence this earthly realm. And so another amazing book, if you get a chance, that would be a good one to read. But we also have the account in Second Kings when Elisha, remember when they were going up against the Arameans and the army was huge and Elisha's servant was kind of freaking out like, wow, there's way more of them than there is of us. And Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open to the spiritual realm. And God honored that prayer. And Elisha's servant was able to see the chariots and the horses and all the, the uh, angelic forces that were, for them, way outnumbered the forces that were in the carnal realm. And so it gave the servant great peace and also a great victory when, when they were able to defeat those forces. So I think we all have some kind of testimony that the spiritual realm is really real. But I want to talk today about the authority that we have in that realm, the spiritual authority that we have. So in Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go do likewise, and I am with you to the end of the age. So Jesus is saying, I have ultimate authority, and now I pass it on to you. So what do we do with this authority? It's very, very important that we understand our role. 
So Jesus secured our power and our authority. It says Jesus succeeded in securing all power by going to the cross. He died a horrible death. He suffered the penalty for sin and defeated Satan in the pit of hell. And that's a given. We know that he did all those things. He came to this earth for a reason. He came to restore that which Satan had stolen away from Adam. And so Jesus had reclaimed that and given it to us, the church of today. Right? So after securing the power and authority, he freely gave it over to us to use and to walk in. So we have a responsibility with this power and authority. So we all know that we're saved by grace, we're saved by the blood, so it has nothing to do with salvation. We understand that our salvation is secured by the finished work of the cross. But there's so much more that we're supposed to be walking in. There's so much more power and authority that we should be exercising, and we should have absolute dominion over this earthly realm and the heavenly realm as well, and ultimately over our own mind and thoughts. So Mark 16 says this, He said to them, Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So that's a very important doctrine. Um, this year, we've been doing altar calls on a very regular basis because we want people to understand that whoever believes will be saved and not condemned. And so if you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to see me after the service and let's talk about it. Because that's the first step, is to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. Okay, he says, These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison... It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. That's amazing, isn't it? So how many of us are operating in this realm? How many of us are doing these things that Jesus said, if you believe, these are the things that you will do? And he makes it sound as a matter of fact and very routinely, doesn't he? So are you routinely healing the sick? Are you routinely driving out demons? Mark's words were not intended just for the early church. And a lot of people would tell you, oh, that was for then, and this is now. No, his words are to the end of the age. Next, we have the authority to preach the gospel. He says to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Um, every born-again believer has authority and responsibility to preach the gospel on this earth. So are you preaching the gospel? Everywhere you go, are you trying to make sure that the dying, those who are perishing, understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? And gospel is just another word for good news. Are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a hurting and dying world? He says, these signs shall follow those that believe. Notice who is to do these things. It says, these signs follow the believers who act in faith and boldly believe in Jesus' name. And it's basically saying, they shall cast out devils. Who's they? It's us, right? They shall speak in new tongues. Who should speak in tongues? We should speak in tongues, right? 
They shall lay hands on the sick, etc. That each believer has power and authority to do these things. And I don't know about you, but that should really excite you to know that you have this power and authority at your disposal. Amen? Verse 20 says that they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs and wonders following. So God confirms his word, but first it has to be put out there. So how would you love it every time you preach, you saw signs and wonders happening? Every time you spoke the word of God, you could expect miracles to happen. In fact, we should be more surprised when a miracle doesn't happen then we should be surprised when a miracle does happen because that should be the hallmark of our faith and that should get the world's attention and what would that do for the rest of the world? It would make them want to have the same power and authority that we have, the same power and authority that we walk in. We have the authority to stand against Satan. One of the most vital areas of the believer's authority is his power to successfully stand against Satan. I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of seeing people kicked around by the enemy. I'm so tired of being kicked, kicked around by the enemy. And, you know, I just want that power and authority that when I say something, that my words mean something. I don't want to have to beg and plead with the enemy to go away. I want to be able to speak a word, and he flees. Ephesians 6.12 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I keep repeating this over and over, this same line, but it's found in many different scriptures that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We have to get it in our head that there's things that are going on in the unseen realm that we have the power and authority over. So we have this power and authority to stand over these forces. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul describes the armor, and Pastor Tim has talked last Wednesday and last Sunday on the armor of God, and he went into great detail of the armor that's found in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And so why is that in there? Is that just figurative language? Is that just romantic speech? Or is that instructions? Is that very instructive, right? And so basically, that mental picture that Paul is giving you gives you confidence. It gives you authority. Because once you start to, to picture yourself with that armor on, all of a sudden, you have a new level of boldness, don't you? Because armor represents authority, doesn't it? And so... Back in the New Testament times, people very much understood the authority that a soldier had because, as you remember, Jerusalem was occupied with Roman centurions. And so they had the full understanding of what this armor represented it, represented it and the power and authority that they had. But not once does God say that he'll fight the devil for you. He already did that. So he's telling you to fight. And so I like Ephesians 6, if you rewrite it just by using you as the subject in the verses, it reads more like this. It says, you be strong in the Lord. You put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
that you take the whole armor, that you may be able to withstand in this evil day. And having done all, you stand. God has given you the power and the authority to stand against Satan and his destructive works. He has provided the armor, but it is your responsibility as a believer to put that armor on and stand against the enemy. So as you put that on, as you consider each piece, this is the breastplate of righteousness. Remember, we're talking about holiness. And so that righteousness, that holiness, that protects our heart, doesn't it? It protects our torsos. The belt of truth is the word of God. You know, we need to be surrounded with that belt. A lot of people teach that their armor is only frontal, that there's nothing behind. But that belt goes completely around your waist, doesn't it? So the truth surrounds you 360 degrees. And so even from your backside, the truth of God should be very evident, very apparent upon you. And so as you walk knowing that you have this armor, that you have this authority, that no harm can befall you, it gives you a supernatural confidence to take a stand against the devil. James 4, 7 says this, James 4, 7 says, You resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The armor and the weapons are at your disposal. God is with you to back his word. But all is worthless unless you take your position and your authority and assume the responsibility that God has provided for you. So we need to stand firm. We need to stand against the enemy. We need to take this this firm stance because it says after you put on the armor, what should you do? You stand. And then after you stand, what do you do? You pray. And you pray in authority. You pray with all the authority that's delegated from heaven. Prayer makes a demand on heaven, doesn't it? When you begin to pray, you begin to call down the things of God. You, be able, you begin to operate in that spiritual realm by saying, God, you told me if I would take a stand that you would be with me. God, you told me if I resist the devil, he will flee. Those are promises of God. And so we know who the liar is. It's not God. He's, a man. He's not a man that he should lie. But the enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he's the liar. So when we take that stand and we say, God, you've given me this authority, and you said if I resist the devil... He will flee. Guess what? God's word is true, and the enemy has to flee. Amen. Then the, the point about binding and loosing, I wanted to hit this because this is a very, very important principle. And I know a lot of people mock this. A lot of people make fun of it. But binding and loosing are such important things to understand. Jesus said, truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So when Jesus said that, the context, the first context, is in Matthew 16 when he was talking to Peter. And remember, he said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit of God revealed this to you. And he said, these are the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those are kingdom keys 
there's kingdom principles, and he gave those keys to the church. And then in Matthew 18, this scripture talks about in the context of relationships, uh, binding and loosing, when you enter into uh, problems and relationships, what's the Matthew 18 principle for the way out? And so binding and loosing were legal terms that everybody in that day Everybody in Jerusalem, everybody within the hearing of Jesus' voice, when he said about binding and loosing, they instantly understood what he meant because of these two legal terms. So to bind meant to forbid, and to loose meant to permit. So forbid or permit by indisputable authority. It was by absolute authority, and I like that, that we have the ability to bind and to loose by the indisputable authority that we have through Jesus Christ. So we have to begin to operate in these keys of the kingdom. And keys represent authority, don't they? If you have the key to a building, if you have the key to something, you have the authority to enter into that. And so having those keys, we have authority. And we need to start operating in that authority. The definition of authority says the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. I'm going to say that again. The power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. So in those battlegrounds, guess what? We have the right to give orders. We have the right to make decisions. And we have the right to enforce obedience. And some synonyms, I can never say that word, our power, jurisdiction, command, control, charge, dominance, rule, sovereignty, supremacy. Those are all words that you can substitute for authority because the authority that we have, that comes from binding and loosing. So when we bind and loose, that is the gatekeeper. When we bind and loose thoughts, we're taking authority over the gatekeeper of our mind by saying, I either... Uh, permit or I forbid that to enter my mind, to be in my mind. When it comes to the carnal or the earthly realm, we should be making the mandates, not the world. I mean, we watched so much stuff happen over the last 10 years on our watch, haven't we? Why? Because the world is dictating to us when we should be the ones standing up and dictating. As we watch the carnal, earthly realm dictate to us the conditions of marriage. Marriage is holy matrimony. Marriage is a, a, sac a sacrament of the church. So guess who gets to call the shots? Guess who gets to bind and loose and have the authority when it comes to defining marriage? And so many other issues of our day that we're struggling with right now, if we would stand up and take a clear shot at saying, I forbid this or I permit this, guess what? The world would be a much different place, wouldn't it? So it's high time the Church of Jesus Christ take a stand and say, enough is enough. We're tired of being kicked around by these other influences, these other forces. So we have indisputable authority. We have to understand who we are. And so nothing helps you to understand more than when you walk into a room, when you walk into a business, wherever you go, you have the understanding, I am a son or a daughter of the Most High God. I am ambassador of the kingdom of God. I have keys to the kingdom. I have the authority to
to bind and to loose. How much would that change the atmosphere if we began to walk in that? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? And the second part is the part of agreement. Because if we operated in unity, number one, we wouldn't feel so isolated and alone and afraid to do the things that we're called to do. But we would have a boldness, right? Isn't it amazing when you're with somebody else how much bolder you are than if you're by yourself? And he says in Matthew, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So we understand that spiritual implication, the increase that we have when we stand in the authority of two or more believers, right? And we know the scripture that says one can send a thousand to flight, two ten thousand. So our increase isn't incremental. It's, it's, it's a multiple, isn't it? It's not just double. It's, it's 10,000. So it's a ten time, a tenfold increase. If one can do a thousand, two ten thousand. That's some amazing math, isn't it? So when it comes to binding and loosing, like I said, you hear a lot of mocking over this. You hear a lot of people making fun of it. You hear a lot of people saying, ah, that wasn't meant for us today. But one, one of the memes that I really liked that was going around a while ago, I don't know if you guys can see this one, but it says, this guy's on a rim of a wicker basket. <laughs> this is amazing. It says, the person who says it cannot be done should not interrupt the person doing it. I absolutely love that. Because early on in my days when I was saved, being a left brain engineer, everything had to be logical. Everything had to be linear. I had to understand everything. And so I used to love to debate theology and stuff like that. But I got to a point where I got sick of it because man's arguments are so silly and foolish, aren't they? Because deep down inside, I was craving what we're talking about today. I wanted to see God heal. I wanted to see God deliver. I wanted to see God's people set free. And so I decided to just quit the theological debating and all the contentious talk and just start doing it. Why not just start doing it? And I remember I, I had a, a disagreement with this guy. He was a very smart guy. He had a PhD in education. And uh, he was a fundamentalist, and I was a budding charismatic. And, and so we kept going round and round, and he thought he was discipling me, and I thought I was discipling him. <laughs> and so we would always get on debates about the spiritual gifts. And I remember one time our church had this theologian come in, and him and I, um, this guy Jerry, would debate all the time where the gifts were today. And um, so anyways, this theologian came in, and... He was doing a study in the book of Acts, and when he got to Acts chapter 2, he said, all I'm going to say is that was then, this is now. The gifts were for the early church. They're not for today. End of story. Let's take a break, and I won't take any questions. I thought, this is one of the noted theologians in the United States today, and that's his explanation of Acts 2. That's his defense of Acts 2. And I never forget when he dismissed us for the break, Jerry and I came into the aisle at the same time as we entered the aisle, and he looked at me, and he was just gloating. He goes, well, I guess that settles that. He thought that settled our debate forever on the gifts. And I don't know, the Holy Spirit just rose up in me, and I said what Elijah said. I said, let the God who answered by fire, let him be God. <laughs> and 
I think he was pretty stumped by what I meant. But he began to see that when people were sick, when people were hurting, guess who you want to pray for you? You want someone who believes that the gifts are alive and well, right? Okay. So, real quick, I want to just um, close with this. Five reasons believers don't walk in the power and authority that we should in Jesus Christ. So, sin is the number one hindrance. So, if you think you have all this power and authority, what's the first thing that happens? You run smack face into your sin, don't you? And that sin just disqualifies you because guess who's right there knocking at your door? The devil saying, you have no power, you have no authority, you can't even control yourself. How are you going to have power and authority over the rest of the world? So you run smack dab into your own sin, don't you? And one of the things that made a huge impression on me, and I know I told this story before, I apologize, but it, it, just, it just rocked me when I heard it. Pastor Isaac Sublai was here a couple weeks ago, the pastor from South Africa. Um, some of you were here, you heard Isaac speak. And so one day we were um, hosting Isaac at a friend's house, and uh, this friend had a beautiful home, and we're sitting on this guy's patio, and Isaac and I were talking, and I just thought I'd mess with him a little bit, because it's kind of fun when someone's from another country, right? And, and I said, Isaac, I said, do you know what this man does for a living? Do you know what his occupation is? And Isaac said, no, I have no idea. I said, he's a judge. I said, in fact, he's a very prominent judge. And I was just trying to rattle his cage a little bit, like, this is where we're going to be staying for the next week, the guy's a judge. You know, put a little scare into him. And he, without hesitation, without a split-second notice, he sprung back in his chair, and he threw up his hands, and he said to me, it's okay, I have clean hands. And I thought, wow, would I have ever come up with such an answer as that? I have clean hands. And that's how we should be, right? Every time the enemy, every time the accuser comes at us, wouldn't it be great if you could just say, I got clean hands. Nothing, nothing sticking on me. The second thing is ignorance, right? Hosea says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Sometimes we're just ignorant to the spiritual realm. Sometimes we're just ignorant to the fact that we have all this power and authority. And so we need to start operating in it and understanding that it is at our disposal. And it is for us to, to use. Number three, unbelief. So many of us walk in unbelief, and so we can't operate in the spirit realm because we just struggle so much with unbelief. Even Jesus himself couldn't do miracles in certain towns because of the level of unbelief was so high in those regions, in those towns. I know I'm flying through these. Number four, fear. Fear is just the crippler on everything, isn't it? And so we operate in the realm of fear so much, but God has not given us a spirit of fear. And so we need to learn to take authority over the very thing that's keeping us from our authority, and that's fear. And so there's so many times that the enemy uses fear as a backlash. So some ways to guard against it is, number one, being led by the Spirit. So if you're led by the Spirit, chances are you're not being led into fear. You're being led away from fear. Make sure that Satan has no legal right to attack you. That's that Isaac statement, right? I have clean hands because the enemy is very legalistic. And if he's got any way to attack you, that will cause fear in your life. And number three, obtain a prayer covering, which leads into number five, 
is one of the reasons we don't operate in this power and authority is because of prayerlessness. Prayer is our main weapon against the enemy. Prayer is what begins to build our, our authority because as we pray, we learn to be intimate with God. And so Jesus said we should always pray and never give up and that we should pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayer. So prayer is so instrumental in what we do as Christians. So if you aren't uh, really in tune with prayer and if you're living a prayerless life, guess what? Your level of authority is going to be way down. So build back up your prayer life. It's so important. And just in closing, I just want to encourage each and every one of you that we're to walk in power and authority. When you walk into a room, do you change the atmosphere or does the atmosphere change you? Who's in control? Who's in authority there? I love when Peter and John were coming into the temple. You all know the story. And there was a cripple at the gate, beautiful. And they said, silver and gold, we have none. But what we do have, we give you. And they told him to rise up and walk. And what happened? It caused an uproar. And all the religious leaders of the day said, tell us by what name, tell us by what authority are you doing this? And they said, it's the authority, it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we all have that power. We all have that authority. We all have that ability. I love accounts of people that have gone before us like Smith Wigglesworth, Charles Finney, John G. Lake, Report after report has been written of them walking into secular institutions, walking into factories, and what happened? People would fall out. People would be slain in the spirit. It's amazing to have that kind of authority on you. Amen? I was laughing the other day. Judy was telling me at the prayer tent, some lady came up for prayer, Catholic lady, and they began to pray for her, and she got slain in the spirit. She went out flat. And one of the people driving by stopped and said, can I call an ambulance? You know? But it's that spiritual authority that that tent represents. Amen? And we're seeing power. We're seeing salvations. We're seeing healings coming through that because a group of believers are standing on the front lawn exercising power and authority. Spiritual leaders from all over the city are stopping and saying, I'm going to start doing this at my church. Because all it takes is one person, right? One person to take a stand. One person to begin to operate in boldness. And it inspires everyone else. The gospel records 40 times of Jesus' authority being questioned. I love that. Every time you read about Jesus doing a sign or wonder or a miracle, it said that the crowds were amazed, that they were astonished. And what would they always ask? Where does this guy get his authority to teach like that? Where does this guy get the authority to heal? Where does this guy get the authority to operate and conduct himself the way that he's doing? It's the authority under heaven that was granted to him. And we have that same authority on us. We have that same authority that as long as we operate in love and compassion, we can see the same things happening we get this authority by being intimate with God. And so that's the point that we need to get to, amen? We need to just become believers that walk in power and authority. So let's stand and let's just pray.